I'm Will Hitchcock. And I'm Siva Vadianathan. And from the University of Virginia's Karsh Institute, this is Democracy in Danger. On October 2nd, Brazilians went to the polls and did not elect a president. There were cheers for Lula as well as tears. Neither of the two leading candidates managed to secure an outright victory, setting the stage for a runoff election at the end of this month. He acknowledged he and his supporters have a lot of work to do over the next few weeks. Until yeah, the, the left-wing the lightning rod, Luis Inacio Lula da Silva, known simply as Lula, seemed like he was on the verge of a remarkable political comeback. You remember that he'd actually been in prison. He was jailed on corruption charges in 2018. For a, a period of time after his last term in office. Had his conviction annulled, but many voters don't trust him or his party. But he fell short of convincing a majority of voters that he could once again lead Brazil's battered economy to better times. Silva is remembered here for his big government spending that really helped lift many people out of poverty. And out Despite leading in the polls for months, some said even by double digits, Lula finished with barely more than 48% of the vote. Meanwhile, his rival, the incumbent president, Jair Bolsonaro, pulled off something of a surprise. He came in with about 43% of the vote and forced a second round of voting. His concern this race could also get violent. There's going to be beautiful blood spilt in this city, this man tells me. I'm prepared to kill all the socialists and communists in the world. Bolsonaro's presidency had been marked by relentless attacks on judges, on political opponents, on the election process itself, and on the Brazilian press. And it was marred by a denial-fueled pandemic response that left nearly 700,000 people dead. Yeah, I mean, it's really been a supercharged election. It has been watched carefully around the globe. I mean, Brazil is the world's fourth largest democracy. It's home to 217 million people. And the struggles that it's facing with its democracy are all too familiar to us here in the United States. Now, to help us sort through all of this, we have an award-winning journalist on the line with us from Sao Paulo, Brazil's most populous city. She's been on the ground covering this historic election. Patricia Campos Melo is the author of the 2020 book, A Machina do Odio, The Hate Machine. It's all about a topic that really gets me going, disinformation and online vitriol. She's also a research fellow at Columbia University's Tau Center for Digital Journalism. Patricia, welcome to Democracy in Danger. Thank you for having me here. Thank you. Well, Patricia, help us understand just what happened in Brazil. Seemed to us from here, like all of the serious polls predicted that Lula would win outright and there wouldn't be a runoff. But now there will be a runoff. Uh, did the pollsters get it wrong? Did people lie to the pollsters? How did Bolsonaro, an architect of chaos, an opponent of democracy itself, pick up so much ground against his challenger? Wow. Yeah, we're trying to understand what's happening. As of now, we all feel like we've been hit by a bus. Basically, yes, they the polls indicated that former President Lula was likely to win in the first round and that President Bolsonaro was running like 15 to 12 points uh, behind Lula. So uh, the results were uh, sort of a wake-up call. First, because you had like over 50 million people 
voting for President Bolsonaro and so many of the candidates he endorsed uh, were elected to the Senate, to the House, and even the Minister of Environment, uh, Ricardo Salles, who basically oversaw the destruction of the Amazon for almost four years, got a record uh, number of votes as a legislator in Sao Paulo. Um, the former minister of health, who basically was prescribing uh, hydroxychloroquine to everyone and saying that people should not worry about isolation and you know distancing, uh, also got elected with a record number of votes. Uh, so basically we're all asking ourselves, uh, what the hell happened? Well, first I think, we underestimated how conservative the Brazilian voters are. This is one thing. President Bolsonaro had a huge, massive support from the evangelicals, and he embraced a Christian agenda against abortion. So that resonated with a lot of uh, voters. Second, because Bolsonaro and his allies, they have been... Um, engaged in this disinformation campaign against polling institutes. He's been saying that the polling institutes are biased and they are left wing, and that's why he's running behind uh, in the polls. His voters do not trust polls. Therefore, they do not answer polls. They don't respond. So mm. that's one theory that the uh, polls, traditional polls, uh, they don't reach the Bolsonarista voter. Common complaint in the U.S. as well. We don't capture the Trump vote adequately through traditional polling. Exactly. I mean, it's the same thing. And the other thing is um, President Lula was uh, his campaign in the last few days. They were really emphasizing what we call uh, voto uchu, which would be like strategic voting, like vote for me. That way I'm going to win in the first round and there are no risks to democracy. But this ended up backfiring because many people who were going to vote for third way candidates and actually do not like uh, the Workers' Party, did uh, tactical voting against Lula. Uh, but I mean, other than that, uh, it's really that I think we always, you know, underestimate how conservative the voters are in Brazil, just because we've had center left or center uh, administrations up until President Bolsonaro. But actually, there are millions of people who never felt understood or heard by uh, the politicians. Let me ask a follow-up question to sort of help us understand the, the mindset of some of the Brazilian voters who supported Bolsonaro. I mean, President Bolsonaro is a remarkably outspoken figure. He has a detailed public record of saying some pretty remarkable things. He has expressed nostalgia for the... The, uh, the years of military dictatorship, uh, his administration oversees a kind of uh, secretive office of hate. They've done a great deal of online uh, harm and damage. Look, I mean, is it too much to say that voters who are supporting Bolsonaro are tired of democracy? They don't like democracy. They've given up on it. And they would like to have a strongman, an authoritarian, to quote unquote, solve all of their problems. Is that, is that going too far? What's your feel? or how the voters feel about the process and the system itself? It's an excellent question. I think, actually, if you ask Bolsonaro voters, uh, Bolsonaro supporters, if they support democracy, they're going to say, of course we do. And our president is fighting for freedom and democracy. It's all a matter of spin. Uh, in the point of view of Bolsonaro and his supporters, they are actually uh, fighting against the authoritarianism of the press and the Supreme Court. 
they are the ones that are defending democracy. And actually, they want the armed forces to have a role in the defense of democracy that is supposedly written in the Constitution, which is not. That's a very weird interpretation. So uh, the main slogan of President Bolsonaro's supporters is, you know, freedom. We're defending freedom. Uh, so this is one thing. So if you ask people, oh, my God, aren't you like Bolsonaro supporters, aren't you scared that, you know, he might enact some really authoritarian measures? They can say, oh, no, he's fighting for democracy, actually. He's fighting against the authoritarians in the Supreme Court, in the press and the establishment. And then the other thing is what has been very successful in the Bolsonaro administration is the communication strategy. After four years of delegitimizing traditional media. They basically keep Bolsonaro supporters in a parallel universe. They get all their political information from junk news sites, news sites that pretend to be regular news sites, but are actually hyperpartisan and full of disinformation. These websites are promoted and shared by Bolsonaro and his allies and his uh, sons. Um, they follow all the extreme right-wing bloggers and YouTubers, and they don't read newspapers, they don't watch TV. So the idea they have of how President Bolsonaro managed the pandemic, why the economy was doing so poorly, it's all, I mean, a totally different vision from what the rest of the population has. Mm. Now, uh, there's been some speculation that should Bolsonaro lose, as expected, he might try to hold on to power through some sort of intervention, a uh, popular uprising uh, or the intervention of the military. Uh, and look, before the election, his campaign was questioning the integrity of the voting machines. In fact, I think he's still questioning the integrity of the voting machines, basically undermining trust in case he loses, right? Um, so are these messages taking hold? Is there such a widespread uh, level of cynicism about the basic functional operations of democracy that people are buying these lines? It's it's like he was doing like a preemptive coup. Mm. He's been sowing doubts about the electoral system and especially the electronic voting machines for the last three years. So I am 100% sure that if he loses the election uh, in the second round on October 30th, he is not going to accept the result. And his supporters are going to be really sure that that was fraud. Yeah. Patricia, this is very interesting because, of course, uh, Donald Trump just recently said something quite similar, which is there will never be another fair election in America. That was essentially his statement. So it's a blanket condemnation of any result that doesn't appeal to him. Anyway, Patricia, if that happens, if there is a, you know, a stalemate and President Bolsonaro says we do not accept the results, what's the scenario that you envision happening? Great question. Um, well, I think the first thing to understand is, are the armed forces going to support President Bolsonaro if he disputes uh, the results? That's anyone's guess. No one knows that. I mean, apparently, no, he would not have support from the top echelons of the, the army. But we don't know about the rest, you know, the, the rank and file, as you say, if they would support or not. But even if he's not successful in, you know, disputing results and trying to revert uh, the election results, it's really besides the point, because what we're going to have is 
a very large part of the population, millions of people that will be sure that the elections will be fraudulent. So what we're going to have is, you know, January 6th, mm. capital invasion times 10, because, you know, we're a much less mature democracy compared to the U.S. I'm not so sure how mature a democracy the U.S. is right now, <laughs> but but having January 6th times 10 is a, is a terrifying scenario. Yeah, I mean, the, what I mean is we had a, a military dictatorship like 35 years ago, so it's kind of fresh. And I mean, it was really shocking for everyone in the world what happened in the U.S., in Brazil, I'm really worried about, you know, what's going to happen. I think the institutions are strong and, you know, the judiciary, civil, uh, civil society. But still, you have people who live in a parallel universe and they are armed because ever since Bolsonaro was inaugurated, we have one million more guns circulating mm. in the country because he just made it so much easier to purchase and carry guns. Yeah, yeah. So I was wondering if uh, the recent memory of living under a military dictatorship would actually strengthen the prospects for democracy as opposed to the United States. I've always thought that here in the United States, we take democracy for granted. Uh, you know, was I being naive? Did I think that the recent memory of dictatorship in Brazil isn't actually helping? One would hope so, <laughs> but mm. apparently for many of the older people, they have this distorted uh, memory from the dictatorship as a time when there was order, uh, things were organized. And I mean, they just uh, erased from the memories, you know, the fact that so many people were tortured and killed and that actually even the economic policy uh, was a disaster after a few years. So during Bolsonaro's administration, I mean, he actually said uh, we should not use the word dictatorship for the military rule. Instead, we should say, you know, the military revolution. No, there's a whole uh, attempt to rewrite this part of history and maybe was successful with part of the population. Patricia, if I could come back to the weaponization of, of online space to... Um challenge reality, undermine reality. I, I want to talk a little bit, I want you to talk a little bit about what it's like to be a journalist right now in Brazil, uh, especially as the target of campaigns of online abuse that you and especially women journalists have had to endure. Is this a calculated component of Bolsonaro's strategy, part of the hate machine? Uh, or is it sort of just uh, opportunistic, uh, uh, the occasional uh, attack of an individual journalist? What's, the, what's it like to be in this environment right now? Absolutely. I mean, it's part of the strategy, uh, because on the one hand, you are using social media and friendly YouTubers uh, or bloggers to communicate directly with your supporters. So uh, we have a, a TV that's actually really big uh, on YouTube, that it's like your Newsmax, like it's to the right of the Fox News. It's very extreme. And it's hugely successful. I mean, there's millions and millions of views and it's recommended over and over again by YouTube. And this is the station that actually spreads, you know, all the vaccine denialism, election denialism, all that. Uh, so for that strategy to work for you, meaning President Bolsonaro, to communicate directly with his supporters and to make his versions of reality prevail, he needs to delegitimize mainstream media. It's part of the strategy. So he's going to be saying uh, day in and out that, you know, uh, mainstream media is communist, blah, blah. 
And then he's going to target specific journalists and, and especially women. One, because he mobilizes uh, part of his most radical base with this misogynistic stuff. You know, people are actually, they feel liberated to be misogynistic. It's like, oh yeah, you see, I always thought that. It's not like the, the kind of aggression we get. It's never like, okay, so I, your story is wrong or your story is really bad. No, it's always like you're fat, you offer sex and then threats. So it, it has two goals, I think. One is to further delegitimize mainstream media. And second is to intimidate. And it is successful because you see, so if I do an investigative piece, that's what's going to happen to me. They're going to post memes like sex stuff with my face on it, or they're going to threaten and expose my address. And then you keep on thinking, am I really you know, willing to risk all that to write a story? Well, you have been writing stories that certainly should alarm and worry uh, the Bolsonaro administration and alarm and worry the rest of us for what's been going on there. So please talk us through what the companies are trying to do to address the situation, what the government might be able to do to address the situation. Well, I understand the judiciary has been raising concerns and proposing some sort of limits on the distribution of disinformation through YouTube and Facebook and WhatsApp, et cetera. But has any of that worked? Has anything improved since 2018? Hmm. Um, I think in 2018, at that time, internet platforms pretty much ignored everything. They said, oh no, this is, you know, doesn't exist. Everything is organic, you know. They didn't even respond. Judiciary system was not ready. And the society in general, we, we didn't really understand what was happening. You know, we didn't understand how could you have so many people that actually believed that the left-wing party was gonna hand out penis-shaped baby bottles to indoctrinate children in schools. So then after 2018, we realized that this new, you know, this information uh, strategy was here to stay. The judiciary changed the legislation. And after the stories, they banned mass messaging. They banned distribution of disinformation, which is very complicated because how do you conceptualize, you know, this information? But anyway, they are doing all that stuff. And the Internet platforms also realized they had a, a PR nightmare. So they needed to do something or at least they needed to seem like they were doing something. So they did sue uh, many marketing agencies. In the beginning of this year, we did a lot of stories about how the moderation policies uh, in the U.S. We compared what the internet platforms did in the U.S. in 2020 in terms of changing moderation policies to maintain civic integrity. And we compared to what they planned to do in Brazil, which was nothing. So after we started publishing this, I guess, you know, somehow that works in terms of the public opinion, putting some pressure. They did some stuff. So I would say that compared to 2018, there's more awareness. You know, the legislation is better. They have legislation now. It's difficult to enforce, but they have legislation. And the companies, the internet platforms are trying to do something, maybe not for the reasons they should be, for PR reasons. But on the other hand, you have a massive disinformation campaign much larger than in 2018 related to the integrity of uh, the election system and endorsed, actually promoted by the president himself and his allies. So uh, how do you deal with that? Well, we can't ignore the fact, of course, that 
Lula's government and then Gilma's government after Lula from the, the Workers' Party as well, uh, they were both marred by multiple corruption scandals. Uh, and even though Lula's own conviction has been overturned by the Supreme Court, uh, it certainly has left a stain on his memory, right? His, there is a sense that at least the people around him uh, might not be able to be trusted uh, so easily. Can you imagine Lula, as popular as he is, being able to bring Brazilians together and restore that surge of economic prosperity that he, he was able to do the first time, uh, restore a sense of optimism and vitality? Uh, what do you think of Lula as a, a leader, as a populist? Is there some danger also in a second Lula administration in terms of the prospects for a clean and healthy democracy? In 2018, we saw the reaction of the voters uh, to all the corruption scandals that plagued uh, the Lula and, and Juma administration. I mean, we cannot argue that there was no corruption because so many people got caught uh, involved in corruption in Petrobras. There was so much money stolen. So I guess because of that, uh, there's a big part of the population who will not vote for the Workers' Party or Lula. Uh, so this is one thing I think whoever wins on October 30th is going to have a fractured country that's going to be complicated. One of the things that Lula always says is that, well, during my administration, there was transparency and the federal police and the authorities, they had uh, freedom to act and people uh, got arrested which is true because now in the Bolsonaro government, he just neutralized all the you know, federal police and they're not investigating anything. But for people who really resent and who are really against all the, the corruption scandals, that is not enough. You know, there, there should be some commitment uh, by Lula and, and his allies that, you know, uh, we're gonna be really, really tough on corruption. We won't have anything similar to what happened in the previous administrations. That would be something because somehow people do have memories of the prosperity that there was during the Lula administration. You know, there was a very big income distribution program that was very effective. And he also increased the number of people that could go to college. I mean, really, really good stuff and, and good stuff for the poor people. But memories are not enough. People are actually, they want to know what he's going to do. How is he going to deal with corruption? So I, I think the fact that he didn't win uh, in the first round, it's it's not good. But it's good in the sense that he's going to have to show actually what he's going to do. Mm. How is he going to deal with corruption? And how is his economic policy going to be? Because there's, I mean, we have no clue about that. And in terms of if he could be a threat to democracy somehow, that is the one thing I think it's not going to happen. If you think of it, he could have changed if he wanted. He could have put pressure on Congress to change uh, the re-election uh, legislation to let him you know, run for a third time. He had like 80% approval rate and he left power. And it's true, unlike Maduro, unlike Ortega in Nicaragua, he did not do... Uh, constitutional hardball, you know, to be in power forever. So I think his democratic credentials are, are pretty solid. Patricia, listening to this and your analysis, I get this uneasy feeling that Brazil may be what America's future looks like. Uh, intense political divisions, conspiracies dominating our politics, disputed elections, intimidation of journalists, intimidation of judges, 
uh, politicization of everything, including science and expertise, and an environmental disaster on top of everything else. I just wanted you to say a few words in closing about the stakes of the election in Brazil for other democracies in the Americas, the United States, and really around the world, there are so many democracies facing some of these same challenges. Um, I think the election in Brazil is hugely important because it's going to indicate the power of the extreme right and the populist right in the world. Both Trump supporters and Bolsonaro supporters are kept in parallel information universes, you know, and they believe in a set of facts that are not facts at all, and they're not shared by the general population. We used to think that that, that was a fringe, you know, that was a, a niche, and it's not. It's like half the population. So how are we going to deal with this, fighting uh, this information that goes viral and that is very uh, appealing and, and emotional? I mean, it's it's something that you might uh, see in the elections in the U.S. in 2024 and even now in the midterms. Uh, that is, what if Trump had disputed the results and he was successful in overthrowing the election results? Mm. I hope we don't see that in Brazil. But that's something you might think about, right? I mean, what if? Uh, one of the things I remember that I read in one of the books that was published after um, the Trump administration was that Mark Milley, the... Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. Yeah, he supposedly said, you know, the guys with the guns are not with you, President Trump, or something along those lines. Uh, what if they were? And what if in Brazil they are? Uh, Patricia Campos Melo, obrigado por todo que voce Thank you for everything you do and for joining us on Democracy in Danger. Thank you. Thank you very much. Patricia Campos Melo is a reporter at large for Folha de Sao Paulo and a research fellow at the Columbia School of Journalism. She's the recipient of numerous honors, including Columbia's Maria Moore's Cabot Award in 2020. And in 2019, she won the International Press Freedom Award from the Committee to Protect Journalists. She's the author of A Machina do Odio, a reporter's notebook on disinformation and digital violence. Democracy in Danger is part of the Democracy Group podcast network. Visit democracygroup.org to find all our sister shows. We'll be right back after this message from our friends. In a world saturated with apocalyptical news, the All About Change podcast hosted by me, Jay Ruderman, is a much needed breath of hope. We bring you stories of activism, change, and courage. Individuals will leverage the hardship they've endured to better other people's lives. It features famous guests, such as NBA star Kevin Love or actor Gina Davis, as well as less-known people with incredible stories. Check out All About Change podcast for your dose of inspiration. See, but one of the things that has been so arresting, so surprising in our conversations with journalists and analysts of foreign countries outside the United States is how the, the extreme right is playing from the same playbook, depending on 
you know, whether you're in Hungary or India or Brazil, the United States, there is this remarkable convergence, you know, dominating the social media and weaponizing it, avoiding conversations in the election about substance and just focusing on hatred towards the opponent upon the doomsday scenario if your opponent is elected. I mean... I just don't know how we claw back from this. Uh, what's right. what is the arc where this this period of craziness comes to an end and we return to something that feels a little bit more like a reasoned debate about differences of, of political views, of political strategies? The thing that's so discouraging is it seems to be expanding globally yeah. rather than being contained. Yeah, I mean we're definitely multiple steps away from getting to the point, maybe not even back to the point, but to the point where um, citizens in Democratic republics can have reasoned, informed deliberation about crucial public issues. Um, We thought we had a pretty good simulation of that in the United States and in other countries over the past few years, and we certainly have aspirations toward it. We have some practice at it. It just seems to be crumbling remarkably fast. Now, when we look at Brazil, India, the Philippines, Hungary, and now Italy, right, are we looking at coordination or inspiration, right? Are people and parties like uh, Bolsonaro and and his liberal party learning from Modi, learning from Rodrigo Duterte, learning from uh, Donald Trump, uh, and thus inspiring through their own actions and speeches and social media campaigns? Or is there actual coordination going on? Are there people talking between and among these camps? We know there have been low-level contacts, infrequent contacts, for instance, among some of the right-wing parties in Europe, but people seem to be falling for this despite all we know and all we've learned over the last century. You know, Siva, in that interview, Patricia did talk a little bit about raising awareness Mm. in Brazil about social media, about the media companies and their role in poisoning the democracy in Brazil and, and an effort so far fruitless to push back a little bit. Sure. Do you see any hope in that regard? Do you think that the enormous criticism that has been placed upon media companies for allowing and in fact encouraging a great deal of this polarization, yeah. is there any sign of shifting sands, um, a sense of growing uneasiness, maybe even some of these companies taking some responsibility? I mean, there's pretty clear documented unease. The problem with these companies is how they're built and structured, right? It's it's in their bones. It's not some, uh, some add-on that went bad, right? The very idea of social media fosters or invites the hijacking of social media by anything that sparks emotion. Now, puppies can spark emotion and babies can spark emotion, but so can false accusations of pedophilia. So can anti-Semitism, right? Anything that makes you feel something and feel a lot is going to catch a wave on YouTube, on Facebook. It's going to get lots of traction in your WhatsApp groups. And again, it's not all algorithms. This is how people are too, right? We are motivated by passions, by emotions. And who is better at promoting and exploiting emotion than a right-wing authoritarian who perhaps is a xenophobe, perhaps is a racist, perhaps is a homophobe. I mean, all of these things strike so deeply. So no, I don't have a lot of hope that media systems 
are going to get better in the short term, um, or for that matter, the long term. I do think that we can learn to live better with these systems, uh, but it's going to take extra hard work. It's not just going to mean putting more on teachers. It means putting more on all of us to just deal with each other in better and more healthy ways. And that's going to be really difficult. The problem is not the machine. The problem is us. Well, it's both. <laughs> and we are the machine. We are the machine. And the machine is us. That's the problem. That does it for this episode of Democracy in Danger. Coming soon, stories about J. Edgar Hoover and what those stories tell us about the FBI's role in American politics. His fraternity at George Washington University was called Kappa Alpha, and Kappa Alpha was kind of a lost cause Southern fraternity. It had been created in 1865 uh, to honor the legacy of Robert E. Lee, um, and that really shapes who he is and how he thinks about the world. Until then, stay in touch. Shoot us a tweet at DND Podcast. That's D-I-N-D Podcast. And please subscribe to the show. Tell your friends about what you're hearing and leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. Are you an activist working in the trenches to save democracy? We really want to hear from you. Please send us a DM on Twitter or drop a comment on our webpage. Our webpage is dendanger.org. Democracy in Danger is produced by Robert Armengol. Rebecca Barry is our assistant producer. Ellie Bashkow engineers the show. Our interns are Ava Kretzinger-Walters, Ellis Nolan, and B. Webster. Support comes from the University of Virginia's College of Arts and Sciences. The show is a project of UVA's Karsh Institute of Democracy, and we're distributed by the Virginia Audio Collective of WTJU Radio in Charlottesville. I'm Siva Vadianathan. And I'm Will Hitchcock. We'll talk to you soon. Thank you.